Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up, connecting the philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. to the current state of the nation. It's very disappointing in terms of where we are and 2021, particularly when we think about Dr. King's legacy and all that he fought for and tried to do to better our country and to see that it looks very much like what it did 50 years ago is a very sad commentary on where we are. That's just ahead. But first, our daily update on the coronavirus pandemic. Here in Georgia, the COVID-19 death toll rose to more than 11,000 over the weekend. To be exact, 11,032 Georgians have now died to the virus. There's been 680,378 COVID-19 confirmed cases here in the state. Also, 46,619 have been hospitalized. Of those, 7,957 considered ICU admissions. This is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, as a result of the pandemic, many ceremonies commemorating the King holiday, well, they're going virtual this year. The annual beloved community commemorative service will take place online, including a live stream on Facebook and the King Center webpage. Now, following the service, the King family will participate in a wreath laying ceremony. The traditional MLK holiday march is canceled this year. However, organizers are still encouraging folks to participate in some sort of volunteer activity. And on this day, as security is at a heightened level around the country and in preparation for the inauguration, today's guest will reflect on the philosophy of Dr. King and the current state of the nation. This is Closer Look. says, I understand in each of us, whenever we observe injustice, there is something that calls, that, that triggers a indignation and outrage. It's okay to feel angry. But I choose to channel that anger and indignation into the posture of a disciplined restraint and a commitment to never dehumanizing my opponent. He said, don't even call them enemies. They are opponents, and we must never dehumanize them. If you look at King as a whole person, right, and that's really what we're teaching, looking at people as whole individuals, not as flat uh, characters, but as whole individuals, good and bad and what have you, you know that he was radical.
King, at his very core, led a movement that tried to, even at times where it was disobeying laws that were unjust, maintain its own morality, and then eventually allow reconciliation to happen. Because King wasn't just about justice, but eventually he was about reconciliation. The things that Maynard and Martin Luther King shared were things like they both believed in nonviolence. Both of them were transformative figures. Dr. King was transformative in his civil rights approach, using the tactics of nonviolence and civil disobedience. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The voices of Dr. Robert Franklin, Professor Nsinga Burton, Doug Shipman, and Valerie Jackson. You know, three years to the day on this very program, three years ago, Closer Look began a series examining 50 years in America after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We invited scholars, civil and human rights activists, students, and pretty much the entire community to reflect on Dr. King by connecting his life and philosophy to America in the 21st century. Now, given what took place on January 6th as a violent mob stormed and assaulted the nation's capital, we're bringing back some of our guests from 2018 to make another connection as a nation that is clearly divided. We begin today's special program with Professor Nsinga Burton, co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration at Emory University in the Department of Film and Media. Also, Ryan Romerman, executive director of the LGBTQ Institute at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And from Georgia Tech, Joycelyn Wilson, assistant professor in the Literature, Media, and Communication Department. Welcome back, all of you, on this day as we celebrate the King holiday. On this day, y'all, which is the official King holiday and, and what it's supposed to represent, the talk of the nation, still the pandemic, and the assault on the nation's capital. Professor Burton, I'll start with you. Is our nation pretty much a mess right now? I think mess is an understatement in terms of uh, the status of our nation currently. Um, you know, I think most people can agree, most thinking people can agree that, um it's very disappointing in terms of where we are. Uh, and when we think about his legacy and all that he fought for and tried to do to better our country and to see that it looks very much like um, what it did, you know, 50 years ago uh, is, is a very um, sad commentary on where we are. Hmm. Professor Wilson, what do you think? Dr. King would have been 92 and here we are talking about a violent mob who wants to affect change, but do it through violence and do it through the promotion of violent words, violent acts. And it is completely against what he fought for and what his vision actually stands for. There are definitely aspects of the vision that we are seeing come into fruition. Yes, we are, we, we have just elected the first woman of color uh, vice president. So there are aspects of his vision that we're beginning to see, but unfortunately it's being overshadowed by the mess of coronavirus, the mess of the political pandemic that we're in, 
the mess of the racial pandemic that we're in. We're in three pandemics right now. And this is happening on a day where he would have been 92 years old. And so to your question about whether or not we're in a mess, I agree with Professor Burton. Mess is an understatement. Um, we're in an all out meltdown. Ryan, what do you think? I agree. And I think that unfortunately for a lot of us who do this work, it's shocking, but not surprising to see what's transpired. Partly due to the fact that we have had a president who has pushed every boundary and every um, lever of power he could to test it. And then on top of that, you have a nation that has not fully reconciled with its past or has tried to dismantle structural racism. So when you have someone at the power at the helm of a structure that is innately racist, who himself is a racist, it's clear that these actions that happened on January 6th, again, were shocking, but not surprising. Hmm. Ryan, let me stay with you because I think I've read at least a dozen op-eds and opinion pieces about healing and what it will take to bring this nation together. But this is not a task solely for Congress or even the Biden-Harris administration. Is this a task that leaders like you all, Brian, whether it be in civil and human rights or our scholars or our, our academia at the college level, is this a time for everyone who is in some type of leadership position to look at how they can be a part of this? What do you think about that? Absolutely. And I think that within the LGBTQ community, for example, um, there's been more and more focus on the intersections of identities and how we can lift each other up. I think that's been important. Um, the Gay Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation recently came out with a post-election poll that found 93% of LGBTQ folks voted, 25% um, for the first time. And the top issue for them was obviously COVID. The second one was healthcare. The third one was racial justice. And it was the fourth one that was LGBTQ equality, broadly defined. So we have a LGBTQ community who uh, is, is making sure that we are starting to, more than before, um, connect with our allies to move things forward, which is what gives me hope. Professor Wilson, you and Professor Burton, you all are educators and both of you also are journalists, too, so you're at that intersection. Where do you all think you fit in? And if we're going to try it and when we talk about healing the nation, or do you think that's not that's not at the core of what you should be doing right now? I honestly don't think it's at the core of what we should be doing. I think black folks, particularly in this country, have always bared uh, the burden of healing the country, healing the nation, you know. Um, and I think it's time for other folks to step up uh, and to give us a break and let us breathe um, because we have been dealing with the systemic uh, oppression um, for, you know, hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think it's too soon for us to be chasing healing um, based on the insurrection last week. Um, but we should always be working towards that end um, overall. But in terms of the insurrection, no, I'm not ready. A lot of folks are not ready. Um, and I think that people need to stop asking African-American people, people of African descent from this country, um, to help heal a nation that hates us. Mm -hmm. Professor Wilson, what do you think? I, I agree. Uh, I have the burden of being a Black woman every day. And so uh, the burden and the blessing 
So to ask me to take on someone else's burdens for them to heal is just a little too much for my little human body. And so when we saw that insurrection, it was very clear that this is not our issue. Uh, you saw on social media folks posting, hey, this isn't, this has nothing to do with us. Mm. Stay out of it and um, allow this, this, this violence that is taking place where at the root of it is one of those evils of, of racism and definitely economic exploitation, uh, let them handle their issues. And I agree with that. Uh, as far as an educator, I think it's important that we stay as honest and vulnerable and transparent with our students um, because that is what they're expecting. At least I know that's what my students are expecting me to do. This is why they sign up for my class. Mm -hmm. This is why the class is waitlisted because they know when they come into Dr. Wilson's class, what we're going to talk about is going to be really uncomfortable, but it is going to push students to think about what's really happening so that as they begin to develop and mature in their own thoughts about what's happening in the world around justice and healing and restoration and reconciliation, they know how to, how to interact with that and how to understand it and know when to fight and when to fall back. I also want to go back to last year with the protests and folks understanding why folks were protesting, obviously, for racial justice issues. And then connect that to Dr. King, because I had these conversations with some some younger folks who said, we understand the civil rights movement. We understand that template. But this is a different time. This is a different space. And some of those principles that Dr. King talked about and lived by just don't apply today. This is through their words. This is what they told me. Professor Wilson, I'll continue with you. Can you understand that mindset for these young folks? I definitely understand it because folks are tired. They're tired of taking the licks and taking the hits and and having a movement where folks are coming in and being um, violent and then them being blamed for it. They're tired of seeing their brothers and sisters beat on television and killed by police officers. They're tired of it. They're tired of having their votes suppressed. Um, it's just an absolute exhaustion. So I definitely understand where they're coming from. On the flip side of that, I also understand Dr. King's template and that there are parts of it that are still very applicable. And when we talk about nonviolence, we see now that violence will get you really nowhere when it comes to trying to affect change. We are seeing that happen with this insurrection. Um, Black Lives Matter, when they go to DC and when they go to other places, they're peaceful. Um, and even when they're peaceful, they are attacked. So to what degree is someone supposed to stay nonviolent when they are continuously being hit, when they're continuously being hosed, when they're continuously being maced? How do you square that circle? And that is a very complex, very complicated conversation. And I definitely understand where they're coming from because nowadays I feel like I have to protect myself. If someone comes for me, I got to protect myself and protect my family. Mm -hmm. So you know, this whole notion that we are not our ancestors, we are not our elders, we stand on their shoulders, definitely. But I, I, I understand where many of them are coming from, because how much more of the violence, the physical violence, the emotional violence, the spiritual violence, how much more is someone supposed to take before they respond? 
Professor Burton, when we look at the images that we saw on January 6th, and now more and more information is coming out about how officers, Capitol officers, were beaten. Uh, there was a report that, as one officer described his ordeal, people were reaching for his gun, saying, kill him, kill him, kill him with his own gun. And then you hear what Professor Wilson just said about when Black Lives Matter protests and the difference in the reaction and the response from law enforcement. What do you make of all that? And can you understand this newer generation of activists saying, see, how are we yeah. supposed to apply? What? Go ahead, I'll, go, I'll let you finish. Oh, yeah, uh, it's called uh, two different Americas. I mean, we're experiencing America, you know, based on these different categories of race, sexual identity or what have you. We have very different experiences um, and we have very dis- different experiences with these dominant systems of oppression. All right. So mm-hmm. we live in a country where we say all black lives matter, black lives matter. Then people say all lives matter. Then it's blue lives matter. But we only know that those things really exist in service to white supremacy, right? Not Black Lives Matter, but the Mm -hmm. other two, right? So Mm -hmm. that's the response like, oh, you know, there's nothing special about African-Americans. There's nothing significant about African-Americans. Why do you need your own movement against racial justice, so to speak? So all of the other responses to Black Lives Matter have been rooted in uh, white supremacist thinking and ideology, right? So, which leads me to our young people. I think that our young people, I mean, I completely agree with Dr. Wilson. Um, and I think that our young people are um, justified in feeling feeling as if Dr. King's uh, approach, um, I, and I will say this, I think young people are justified in feeling that Dr. King's stated approach, right? What we most often talk about, which mm-hmm. is nonviolence, um, is not necessarily the best response in terms of what we're dealing with now in society. But having said that, I would encourage them to learn about all of Dr. King because Dr. King's positions were evolving. And I think he was coming to that understanding too. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the Poor People's Campaign of 1968 and what he was trying to do, um, and you know what Ryan says in terms of reconciliation, in terms of, of seeing what is happening to our people, you know, Dr. King and uh, Penny L. Joseph wrote a fantastic um, essay about this. Um, but Dr. King, really um, was focused on addressing the issues. This is how he and Malcolm came together, right? On addressing these issues of violence against Blacks. He wanted to address these issues of violence by police against Blacks, right? So he called on everyone to be nonviolent, not just us. Mm -hmm. And so I think in this day and age, people always are like, Black people be nonviolent, but everybody else can be violent, (laughs) you know? And that is not what Dr. King meant. Right. Dr. King was about the approach of nonviolence, but everyone should be nonviolence and really think about this piece of reconciliation and making sure that we focus on the needs of those who are the most disenfranchised, which, of course, is poor people. And at that time and currently a lot of African-Americans. Um, so I understand the students, but I would encourage them to learn more about Dr. King as a whole. You know mm-hmm. uh, what the version of Dr. King that we get in our schools. Uh, on television and in major institutions is this kind of pacifist um, reverend who just wanted the world to be a better place. But he was very strategic. Um, He was very thoughtful. Uh, He did understand that his approach um, was um, not working uh, in the way that it needed to work. 
Um, he also uh, put a lot of pressure on those who were in power uh, in order to acquiesce and to give our community what we needed. So he's not, you know, this flat, and this is what I said, you know, this, he's not a flat person. He's a very um, complicated person. And people need to learn that about Dr. Mm -hmm. King. I think if they learn more about him, then they'll understand how he is still applicable, very much so in this day and age. Ryan, your thoughts, the connection between this generation, what's taking place now in our nation in Dr. King's philosophy? Well, I think it's, when we look at the system that's been created, as I mentioned before, it's a racist system. And I think that our young people um, are seeing it and are calling it out. And I think that more and more, especially for white folks in general, not just young people, but white folks need to step up. I mean, this racism is something that white people created. They have created this system of power and they are struggling to keep it. And that's what we saw in January 6th was really this, the death throes, hopefully, of folks who want to maintain the status quo so they can benefit. And I think that as more young people learn about systems of inequality um, and the history of our nation, which is uh, racist and homophobic and transphobic, uh, we're seeing young people again, you know, 25% um, are, have been new voters within the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. They want change and they want it to come now. And I think that giving them the tools and tactics um, to Professor Burton's point that Dr. King was able to um, relay in terms of strategy, organizing. It's not just about the act of violence, because that is something that we saw on January 6th, which hopefully won't go anywhere. But it's the act of strategically organizing, um, you know, making sure you have strategically placed advocates, understanding the level, the levers of power and the scaffolding that was created to do that. I think when we see um, you know, Reverend Warnock being elected as senator, and we have, um, you know, folks that are coming to power and changing the one-party system that's happened in the South, which Dr. King talked about, mm -hmm. um, that we're starting to see some change here. And I think that that is, you know, when Stacey Abrams has done the work um, with a host of Georgia organizers to change the state, um, young people are seeing those and understanding those tactics, which very much fall in line with Dr. King. And what he talked about. So it's about being strategic. I think it's channeling that anger mm -hmm. and that energy into a way that allows them to have, as young people and activists that are coming up, um, tools in their toolbox to understand how do we affect change um, in the most nonviolent way possible, but in the quickest way possible. I could talk to you all forever but as we get set to move on to our next segment. But I want to end by asking you all this because we talked about and I asked you in the beginning, was our nation a mess right now? And you all answered that. So here's the question. I guess this is the the optimistic question that we like to always end on folks like me. Ryan, I'll start with you. Where do we begin then? Well, I was just going to say, um, you know, morning of January 6th, I was elated. Uh, Georgia had just uh, won, uh, you know, you had Warnock and Ossoff, they had won. I was, I, was, I was so excited and I was disappointed that that story was taken away because of the, the um, insurrection at the Capitol. But I think, it, again, it gives me hope to know that the South is changing, that hopefully the playbook that we had in Georgia can be um, related to other Southern states in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so we can start changing um, the system that's oppressed people um, since the beginning. And I think that that is something that gives me hope is knowing that we've been able to do it in Georgia. We can continue to do it. And then with young people coming up who are becoming more polit politically active and recognizing their right to vote, 
um, I think that we're going to hopefully have a change um, in the way the United States structures itself in terms of how it views its citizens, hopefully sooner rather than later. And that gives me hope. Professor Wilson, where do we go then? What's next? Yeah, I am really excited about what Atlanta and Georgia was able to do with not only the presidential election, but also the Senate race. And the way in which Black women took up the challenge of registering voters, making sure that folks who had been unheard were ready to be heard. This breaking of a curse of Jim Crow legislation just really warmed my heart. And to know that at the helm of that were Black women who were working tirelessly to ensure that everybody got an opportunity to hear their voice. I am hopeful also because when Black folks win, everybody else wins. And that is a fact. So I am hopeful that as we continue to move forward and Black people are afforded the opportunities to just be their whole self, everyone else will have an opportunity to be their whole self. Professor Burton, I'll give you the last word. Where do we go from here? Yeah, I, you know, I'm a realist, Rose. And so optimism, I struggle with. <laughs> struggle with optimism. But I will say um, I am very proud to have been part of the Blue Wave um, that has, is changing our country. And I do agree with both Ryan and, and, and Joycelyn that, you know, it, you know, it's part of the process. You know, disruption is part of the process, right? Chaos can be part of the, the process. Um, but I would also encourage Black people, you know, African-American people um, to remember that we are resilient. And this is all African-American, whether you LGBTQ, <laughs> you know, whether you are Christian, Muslim, whatever, however you identify, GDI, Divine, whatever, <laughs> that Black people are resilient. Uh, and we will get through this and we will come through this bigger and better because we always do. And I think it's a testament, you know, January 15th is... And, you know, Martin Luther King's birthday is the founding date of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. These were Black women, and, you know, as Dr. Wilson is saying, Black women who were doing this work way back when, women of Delta Sigma Theta, doing this work way back when, Zeta Phi Beta. Um, all those Black club women who predate our sororities that we don't talk about outside of historic spaces, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we've been doing this work. We will continue to do this work. We do not, um, we do get tired, but we will not give up. Professor Nsinga Burton, co-director of the Film and Media Management Concentration at M University. Ryan Roberman, executive director of the LGBTQ Institute at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. From Georgia Tech, Joycelyn Wilson, assistant professor in the Literature, Media, and Communications Department. Thank you all for coming back on this day. Thank you all for what you had to say. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. 
lot of our young people, they hear the name Dr. Martin Luther King, and sometimes it does not relate to them. They understand how important he was and how significant it was. But sometimes to be able to tell a story where you can actually say that you were in the presence of him. And as growing up in the 60s, I'm a native of Atlanta. I was a member of the Butler Street YMCA. And uh, we had uh, a swimming pool at the Butler Street YMCA. And there were times when the adults would use the pool, and then there were times where the young people could uh, use the pool. So while the adults were finishing up, we would have to stand on the sidelines. And I just remember uh, on several occasions seeing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the swimming pool at Butler Street YMCA. And, you know, we thought he was the, the greatest at that time because we had heard so much about what had been done with the bus boycott. And so to be able to go up to shake his hand, I was like 12 or 13 years old and uh, something I, I'll never forget. I was in college when he was assassinated and uh, I was one of the first ones out in a march downtown Albany and, and because it meant so much and he meant so much to us. And, you know, we've always got to try to carry out his legacy, you know, and doing those things that he advocates in terms of understanding the importance of an education. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott, the words of longtime educator and former president of Morris Brown College, Dr. Stanley Pritchett, talking about King's influence on young people. As we continue our special King Holiday program from Morehouse College, let's welcome back Professor Ilya Davis, director of the New Students and Transition Programs and professor of philosophy. Welcome once again. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. You were listening in on the segment earlier as we talked to uh, leaders in the community from scholars and, and leaders in the LGBTQ community. And I asked them this question about everyone's talking about healing and how we heal this nation right now. Some varied opinions. What did you get from that conversation, that particular conversation? It was beautifully, beautifully insightful. I mean, the salience of many of the comments led me straight to a quote from Martin Luther King, where he made the statement that freedom is the bonus you receive for telling the truth. And that seems to be the fundamental requirement. And as we understand now, truth is a distant cousin to most. And I think that um, your previous participants, they were speaking truth. We have a tendency to overuse truth to power, but they spoke truth, even to those of us who know truth, who have a tendency to be apprehensive about disclosing that truth. Mm-hmm. So that that for me was profound. The idea of being honest about what is necessary, what's needed, and how we move forward in the in the proper and best and most appropriate directions. When we had our last conversation and I re- received an email from a listener who called you angry, and you and I talked about that, <laughs> and then I received an email from someone saying, look, bipartisanship doesn't doesn't apply right now. They felt that that was something that was being overused and that folks like me should stop talking about Congress having this bipartisanship spirit to heal the nation. How do you respond to that? What do you think? Well, let's take the former first. I'm extremely angry. I'm glad that they could recognize that. I'm angry that the level of poverty has not fundamentally changed. I am angry that gay brothers and sisters and trans brothers and sisters are murdered. I am angry that black women still make less on the dollar than everyone else in our society. Of course I'm angry. I wouldn't be human, I don't believe. 
And so that's a necessary condition. I didn't say destructive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the point has to be that there has to be a certain type of condemnation of oppression. And I hope that when I speak, it comes through. I want people to feel the tension. It's difficult to live and see people suffer. It should bother all people who have a modicum of humanity. Um, now, on the bipartisan part, no, it's not. And, and I think it's a it's a facile position to take when people argue about, you know, crossing the aisles. I normally take that to be quite problematic. Mm-hmm. We live in a two-party system that I despise, and they fundamentally make their money predicated on the assumption that they will disagree in public, quote unquote. And so even when you hear people say, well, you know, I've been friends with such and such who is not a part of my party, that's an indication because part of it is they agree on too many things, right? They agree on not providing resources for impoverished people. They provide too much financial support for the military. When we have Supreme Court justices that are claimed to be a little more conservative than progressive desire, well, how is it that that person gets 85, 90% of the votes from Congress? That's not, that's not representing your constituency. That seems to be playing a culpable role in creating the division in this country. Mm-hmm. And then we have a tendency to be undereducated in, in social, social structures where we fail to understand how these things play out in the long run. So yes, it is a little bit premature to talk about you know, bipartisan, if at all. When we talk about Dr. King and his philosophy and people want to connect the philosophy and the legacy and his speeches and all that, you know, people been doing that now for 50 years plus. And if we talk about how do we apply that now to where we are in this nation, Professor Davis, what do you extrapolate from those tentacles tied to Dr. King that can be applied to how this nation can move forward? Interestingly enough, March 12, 1968, The Other America. I think that's one of the greatest talks that Martin Luther King Jr. ever gave, Mm -hmm. primarily because people had a tendency to assume that he had become watered down. And this is right before his murder. And he still says this is a racist country, right? It must be reconciled. And so you have to take that to heart and say, my God, what was going on? Had things not changed? He, he goes through a laundry list of legislation that seems to have fallen um, stillborn. And he doesn't see that these things have fundamentally taken us in the direction that the country needs to go. But Martin Luther King maintains the fundamental investment in love, dignity for others, respect. But what he's saying is we have to avoid what he then refers to as what appears to be the logical outcome of racism. And that was the European Holocaust of Jewish brothers and sisters. And he's trying to implore us, don't fall victim to the logical consequence. And that's genocide, right? That's the death of everyone involved. And one of the beautiful things I loved about Martin, he is one of the most brilliant ironists that I've ever heard. You know, in philosophy, we talk about people like Zordon Kierkegaard is a great ironist. Martin Luther King is brilliant. The, the idea that he would advocate for nonviolent social change, knowing that black people aren't going around beating up and killing white people, but the indirect communication to those who are oppressing is the beauty of his irony. And that is, it appeared as if he were telling black people, don't be violent, but he was really talking to white people who couldn't accept direct communication. So he had to be indirect in a brilliant way. 
And so I think part of what we're looking at today is we may need to be a little more direct. They didn't get it. Right. Mm-hmm. And not all white people. Of course, we're not doing that. that that's immature and underdeveloped and, and, and disingenuous. But those who have access and power, as we sit now and watch congressperson and senator not speak truth to power, they know there's a problem. And so for whatever fiduciary reasons, for, for political expediency, whatever your reason, you're going to have the moral fortitude. You need the moral fortitude to speak what is true. And this is the problem that we're facing right now. The problem now is that of truth. And we have articles and people arguing about, well, what concept of truth are you functioning under? Mm -hmm. The concept we're functioning under is what is being said has no location in the world. None. That's false. Democracy. Everyone looks at this nation as this with the small D, this democratic nation as being the template for how things should work in the world. But I'm curious what impact all this has globally on our reputation as a democracy. Well, one might say we are now consistent with all the other imperialist countries of the world. I mean, France, Germany, Spain, they're not innocent. And the United States of America, the problem has been that they've often rhetorically tried to place themselves as the city on the hill or the country on the hill. And I think most people really understood it wasn't true. It was almost to say they were trying to convince themselves of an an unreality. It's never been true. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of what has happened, even if you track what transpired in the late 60s, part of what changed the movements of the late 50s and 60s was television. The idea Mm -hmm. that Black people had been getting beaten and killed prior to 61, 62, 63. What happens is it's on television. So John F. Kennedy calls down Alabama. Whoa, this shouldn't be on television. What are you doing? You're embarrassing us. Not that what we are engaged in is immoral. It's that it's being seen by others. And that's a problem. That's duplicitous. And so I believe now that the world now is sadly giggling and laughing, saying you too Hmm. are unclothed, right? The king has no clothes. You've never had on clothes, but you kept trying to convince everyone Not only do we have on clothes, we have the most posh and elaborate clothing. It's not true. And the beauty of it is this level of self-reflection on the part of a state is something that is supposed to be part and parcel of what constitutes a great democracy. You're always open for self-reflection, self-evaluation. So it's not a problem to have shortcomings. The problem is not to recognize those shortcomings, undermine those shortcomings, and work towards ameliorating those shortcomings. That's the failure of the country, not working to ameliorate these transactions. Hmm. Professor Ilya Davis, stay with me. I know our other guests are still with us, but I want to welcome in now to the conversation as we continue this King Holidays conversation. I'm going to welcome in Doug Shipman. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered a sermon at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, back on November 17, 1957. The sermon was Love Your Enemies. This is kind of interesting. Center-elect Raphael Warnock tweeted a quote from King's sermon on that day. The, the insurrectionists stormed and assaulted the Capitol. And he tweeted this, quote, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that, close quote. As we welcome in Doug Shipman, founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and former CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center and also Kingian Scholar. Doug, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Rose. It's always a pleasure to be here, especially with all of these great guests you have. 
I want to end today's segments talking about Dr. King and the philosophy of nonviolence, love your enemies, and as some of the other guests have stated, he was changing a little bit on that. Doug, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that message of love your enemies, um, if you can sum up what he was saying in that sermon. Well, you have to remember that King talked about a radical love. This is not, uh, and he and he went into the Greek philosophers and different kinds of love. And, and his notion of a radical love was, was one that required things. It was not a love that said, "Well, I'm going to love you unconditionally." It's one that says, "I'm going to love you, but but I'm going to love you in a way that requires you to fulfill." a bond to one another, a bond to the world, a bond to your brothers and sisters. And so I think that the notion was that, you know, he ultimately is believing that you achieve justice and ultimately you can get to reconciliation, but it has to go in that order. You don't reconcile before justice. You don't love unconditionally, right? If you have to have justice and brotherhood and sisterhood, and then you can get to reconciliation. And so I think that we sometimes, you know, we can take a quote from a sermon in a very small context, but you have to look at the entire philosophy in which he's bringing forward. And I don't think it, it is saying that you're going to let people off the hook or that you're going to not hold people accountable. Quite the opposite. He is, he is basically asking people to be held to a very high standard, and he is willing to work with people on that journey. But if they're not on that journey, then he shows us the other things that he wants to, to bring forward, direct action, calling people very directly out for their duplicity, uh, you know, see letter from Birmingham jail, uh, which I was just reviewing ahead of today, mm -hmm. where he very distinctly calls out Christians, he calls out white ministers, he calls out those who say that we have to wait. Um, so this is a this is a radical love. Here's the question I have, and, and all of you can jump in, but Doug, I'll start with you. Why do folks only always just focus on Dr. King and this nonviolence just to make a point they don't take the time to also opine on the other tentacles tied to that. They just say he was nonviolent and that's the way it should be. Well, I think with any what I would call prophetic voice from history, we over time as we move further and further away from their life, we want to make their philosophies into sound bites and into T-shirts and the easily digestible things. And we don't go back to the source material. Right, whether it's the Federalist Papers or whether it's Dr. King's writings, there is an enormous amount of philosophy and you can't just lift a quote here and you can't just lift a phrase there and say, well, that proves my point. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I, I'll never forget that it, it's when we were building the center and we're talking to the King family, that they always said, we wanna make sure that you know everybody's going back to the source material and they're actually excavating what Dr. King's philosophies were, and then grappling with those in our current context. Why do people do it? They do it because it's easy. They do it because it's intellectually lazy. And they do it in order to try to prove some other point that they want to make, as opposed mm -hmm. to starting with Dr. King and grappling with his prophetic voice. I see a lot of heads shaking, so I want to go back around the table. Professor Davis, you want to add to that? Oh, I agree, definitely. And part of what Martin was trying to argue for was a form of repentance, if not penance, on the part of this country. The vitriolic language, but then the silence. And I think that is one of the most brilliant points. You can't sit back in silence, so you're culpable. So for me, that becomes central to the idea that you must speak up when you know right from wrong. Mm. Professor Burton? I mean, I just, you know, co-signing on what uh, Ilya said and Doug, Dr. King is a whole person. 
And I think sometimes we deify our legends, our civil rights lions and what have you, but they had whole and complex lives. And I think people seize on the nonviolence because they like the idea of black people being in vulnerable positions, right? So it's like you stand up for yourself and it's like, oh, you know, you're not doing what Dr. King wants you to do. Well, if you know Dr. King, you're actually absolutely doing what Dr. King wants you to do. And, you know, he was assassinated. So unfortunately, he's not here Mm -hmm. to tell us what he might have done or for us to see his evolution, which was already shifting and changing then you know that Dr. King does not want you to suffer. He does not want you to submit in service to white supremacy. He does not want you to be nonviolent in the face of violence. You know, and unfortunately, he's not here to tell us that. So I would say, um, think of Dr. King again as a complex individual and take the time and stop being, as Doug said, intellectually lazy and find out who he really was. No, I'd just add one other point. We we often use the word nonviolence to describe sort of that aspect of King, but, mm-hmm. but to be honest, we have to say nonviolent direct action. It was not nonviolence as the act. It was yeah. nonviolence as direct action. It was a form of direct action. Remember, he's, he's disrupting. He's being arrested because he is in the way. He mm-hmm. is making sure that things aren't working the way that they were supposed to work. So I just also think that's important when we talk about that aspect of King. And he's afraid. Because that's the other narrative that people want to try it out, that he was unafraid. He is afraid. If you look at the video, you know, the footage of him in the marches and you hear a gunshot, he jumps. You know, he is also afraid, but in the face of fear, in the face of violence, he is still moving forward towards the goal of liberating Black people. And then when you liberate Black people, you liberate all of America. So people need to remember that about Dr. King, too. Brilliant. Ryan? To, to Doug's point. I, I just I think that the idea of really excavating what Dr. King has said and not just being lazy and enjoying sound bites to justify your cause, but really doing the the hard work of looking inward and applying his words to today. And I think that remaining silent in this moment is a choice. So you have a choice to uh, do nothing or you can be part of the solution. And I hope that folks are looking at what's happened recently and getting off the fence. Um, there is no fence anymore to sit on. And I think that mm-hmm. using the words of Dr. King to inform um, and, and to help create a moral consciousness that is, is needed um, is going to be key. And I think it's important for white folks to know um, their history. And again, I think it goes back to the idea that um, you know, even when we've done uh, some of our diversity, equity, inclusion um, trainings at the center, for example, you have a lot of folks who are struggling with um, not understanding why their black colleagues aren't wanting to educate them. To uh, Professor Burton's point is that, you know, we have work to do, and I think that we need to get educated and start educating others. And I think it's 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 time. And I think that these are the source material that we need to look at. Um, while we start to inform how we um, start to understand our role um, in creating a system that has oppressed um, our society. Um, and it's, it's interconnected. So I think that um, hearing the words of Dr. King and really digesting fully um, the different aspects of his work, um, especially as we've talked about here, how his work evolved um, is important as we think about how we move forward. Professor Wilson, your thoughts? 
folks taking Dr. King's message. Yeah, and- I agree with everybody. I agree with everybody. And I think it's what we're seeing right now is how dangerous it has been to frame him as someone that's soft, someone who has promoted uh, a movement that if someone hits you, then you don't hit them back. And to not unpack that is, is very dangerous because now we're in an all out meltdown. I'll say that again, where folks have lost their lives at the hands of thinking that Black folks in particular are a community who loves Dr. King so much that they will be nonviolent in the face of violence. And teaching that type of sentiment is really dangerous and not unpacking who he was and what he meant to to Doug's point, what he means by nonviolent civil disobedience and what he means by nonviolent direct action. I think that if we go to even some of the texts around um, hip hop and rap music, we see that being complicated a bit in in a lot of the music that came after the soul and R&B into rap and poetry, spoken word and hip hop, where this aspect of what it means to really be nonviolent and what that and how that is applied to um, political action now we're at a point where we're able to really unpack that and we had to get here and i think what happens is seeing white folks attack white folks and seeing um white folks who may not be as um as rich as some of the people that they um support actually seeing them work against their own economic interests. I think all of those types of situations are now beginning to say, hey, what does this nonviolent thing actually mean? And beginning to to understand that Dr. King was not liked when he was here because he was beginning to move into a different area where nonviolence theoretically wasn't necessarily applicable in a practical way when someone continues to put their hands on you or continue to kill you when you're just jogging around your neighborhood or put their knee on your neck where your last words is I can't breathe and you're screaming for your mom. So now we have these very real and tangible situations that are upon us where we have to wrestle with what he really, really means by nonviolence. And I think that that's important. And I think that that's the silver lining in what this particular birthday actually means and what the celebration means and what the legacy actually affords us to be able to do is to address what a lot of these theoretical concepts mean practically. And if I may, I was gonna say one thing that's problematic, Martin Luther King's request, it is a request. This is not an edict. And there were countervailing voices, everyone from Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker. And part of what is problematic is the way we revised it. And, and Sister um, Joycelyn just said it, 55% of Black people, as recorded, were not advocating for Martin Luther King's ideas. Over mm-hmm. 72% of, of America did not advocate for his ideas. And part of what happens is this revisionist account makes it appear as if there was Martin and everyone else. And that is disingenuous, it's inaccurate, it's not the account of what was transpiring in this country. You had CORE, you had SNCC, you had other possibilities. 
And we must maintain this diversity and complexity when we talk about him. So my, my last bit is about the metaphor I use for Martin Luther King is a lighthouse, which means he directs us not to himself, but to others. And part of the problem is on this day, there's a tendency to overwhelm him with all the burden of, did he give the answer? Mm. No, it was never supposed to have been the answer. The lighthouse shines the light and allows you to take direction predicated on what is now illuminated. And that would be Ella Baker, this brilliant woman who orchestrated most of what we uh, associate and ascribe to Martin Luther King Jr. Bayard Rustin, the most brilliant strategist that we had. And so it's not a matter of either or choose this one. We must embrace it all. And these are the ways we think about and envision and reason through liberation and liberative action. Doug, I started with you. I'll give you the last word here as we wrap up when you reflect on this day. But what is your takeaway that you hope people get from when we celebrate the King holiday and how to apply it to what's currently taking place in our nation? Well, I think in many ways, this conversation illustrates that, that that King can be viewed as the modern philosopher for our moment, because we are grappling with how to live in a truly just multiracial, multireligious society that's interconnected, just like King talked about. And, and I would I would say that we have to remember King's three great scourges, racism, militarism, and consumerism. Racism leads, it is racism, con, uh, consumerism leads to poverty, and militarism leads to war. And if we look at some of the things we're grappling with, we're grappling with economic inequality, we're grappling with a militaristic police force that then propagates violence on people. And so I think that if we go back to King, King has given us, I love this metaphor, the lighthouse, King has shined the light on possible solutions. He's shined the light on potential answers. And I think he most importantly says you cannot address one without addressing all three. Violence, economic inequality, and racism are all linked and self-reinforcing. And so if any city can really honestly start to grapple with it, it's Atlanta. But I think we have to be honest that in Atlanta, we haven't grappled with it yet. And so I hope today is the beginning of the grappling, is the taking that foundation that that King and so many others have laid down and starting the building, rebuilding process. Doug Shipman, Professor Ilya Davis, Professor Joycelyn Wilson, Professor Ansinga Burton, Ryan Romerin. Thank you all so much for being part of today's conversation. I I really appreciate it. Always enjoy the conversation. Y'all make editing very hard. Thank you all so much. That's your job, Rose. Your job is to edit. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. And if you missed any of today's conversations and segments, you can find the entire program online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, always on demand, just subscribe to Closer Look with Rose Scott wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.